Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Both Sides of the Stethoscope podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Colby Salerno, here with my co-host, Dr. Aline Gregosian. Hey, guys. We are going to be doing a part two of our giving back to the transplant community tonight with an interview with Denise Redeker, another heart transplant recipient who has turned her gift of life into helping others. Welcome on, Denise. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. So Denise, before we get into what you're doing um, in terms of giving back to the transplant community, we first love to hear everyone's unique story. So tell us kind of what led to you needing a heart transplant? Well, um, I have an interesting backstory um, because, and I think it's pretty unique because I don't know that anybody's father-in-law has ever diagnosed them with heart failure before, um, but that's what happened to me. Um, my, I had just delivered uh, my son um, several years ago now, and my father-in-law walked into the room to meet his new grandson and looked, uh, he was just passed away last year, but he was one of the world's leading liver specialists. Anyway, um, he, he worked uh, doing liver transplants um, years ago, and as physicians do when they walk into rooms, they looked at the EKG monitor that none of the other doctors or nurses were looking at at the moment. And uh, before he even said hello to me or hello to his new grandson, um, he called in the attending and said, you need to get the cardiologist on call in right now. And um, pointed at my EKG and said, there's something that's not right. And that led to my diagnosis of postpartum cardiomyopathy. I'm fascinated wow. to know if you knew what he was looking at. Oh, not at all. I, <laughs> I had zero idea what was going on. Um, I just knew that he stopped mid-sentence, looked up at the EKG monitor, and um, pretty much walked out of the room. And this was like immediately postpartum, like just yeah. a couple. Oh wow! I I probably was I probably had about a three hour old child at the time. Wow, that's crazy! I had no idea, Denise. Yeah, and I'm yeah. I'm sorry to hear about his loss. Oh, uh, it it was uh, it was very sad. We miss him. We miss him very much. My son is actually getting married, and I just found I found Grandpa's cufflinks, and so he's gonna both. Both my husband and he are going to wear them at the wedding, which is oh, that's cool. so nice. oh, that's amazing. So we get to bring him with us. But if it weren't for my father-in-law, I wouldn't be here today. And that's as a crazy. as a cardiologist, I just got to know what the liver doctor was seeing that other people didn't pick it, up on. It had to have been bad, like <laughs> if the liver doctor also noticed it. Um, yes, this is true. What what exactly happened after? Were you diagnosed immediately? Did it take a few weeks? Did they did you have any symptoms of anything? I had no symptoms that I could notice and actually was completely asymptomatic for years after that. Um I although I will say now in retrospect that I was probably symptomatic, but it felt normal to me. So we all operate on what feels normal to us, right? Right, so, like maybe you would have been tired, but you don't remember, or maybe you thought right. it was from postpartum. You chalk it up to you chalk it up to postpartum. You chalk it up to right. overwork. You chalk it up to you know twelve hour days, and you chalk you you're tired. Everybody isn't everybody tired. Um, so I never, um, I never thought anything was out of the ordinary because I could chalk up all of my quote unquote symptoms to 
just, you know, regular life. life. Yeah. 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 And so, and so I really, I, it really wasn't until I went in for, I was a good patient. I went in to see the cardiologist every six months and kept telling him, I feel fine. I feel fine. I think you guys are crazy. Um, and it wasn't until I went to see a new cardiologist because we changed healthcare plans and he went through the usual battery of tests. And he said, um, called my husband and I in with a very serious look on his face. And he said, you need an implanted ICD yesterday. Wow. And, and I said, no, why? No, that's not, that's not for me. Um, and ended up having surgery the next week to implant an ICD. So, um, and then, and then things started to change little by little things started to change. And all of a sudden I was a little more symptomatic and a little more symptomatic. And then on, um, December 30th of 2017, I got told I had a year to live. Oh, what year was that? 2017. 2017. December 30th, 2017. I, oh uh, I got told that without a transplant that there was, uh, the clock was ticking. They couldn't treat me anymore. And um, I had a year left. So for several years, you had the ICD, you were on medications, you would see your cardiologist every six months, but then suddenly in December, 2017, um, you got worse. And that's when you needed the, or that's when they told you that you probably needed a transplant, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And they bandied around the word transplant before, right. you know, like, you know, this ends in transplant, right? But I was still feeling fine. And so I, every time they'd say that to me, I just blow it off and say, well, that's going to happen to somebody else. It's certainly not going to happen to me. Right. But then it did. (laughs) Wow. So you started getting the evaluation then. And then how long did you wait until you got your transplant? I didn't even have time to even hardly start the evaluation because uh, January 6th. So the year left to live diagnosis came on December 30th <laughs> on January 6th of 2018. Um, I went into VTAC and um, didn't come out of it. Um, kept getting shocked over and over again um, and ended up in the emergency room and ended up then in an ambulance over to Stanford. And they wow. told me that I was too sick to leave the hospital and that I would be waiting there for a transplant. And that's where I did my really quick evaluation for transplant. Wow. So it was all sudden then. It was for, for, a, for a diagnosis that started 20 years prior. Uh-huh. The actual like whole, you're going to need a transplant. We're evaluating you for transplant. Guess what? You're getting a transplant happened in the span of about three weeks. Wow, that's crazy. So then in January, that's when you went to the hospital, you were hospitalized for the transplant. How many how many weeks did you wait until you got the transplant? Three. Oh wow. So by the I end was, of January 2018? Yep. I was transplanted on January 31st, 2018. Oh wow. And what has life been like post-transplant for you? Well, immediately post-transplant, life kind of sucked. <laughs> I had both types of rejection and a hospital acquired infection. Um, I had three open heart surgeries in the span of a week. Um, it was unfun. It was, it was not fun. Um, and there were times when, um, I don't think any of us thought I was going to make it out on the other side. Um, they were actually considering a fourth 
open heart surgery to deal with the uh, infection. Mm-hmm. Um, when I melted down on them and begged them not to, um, I just knew I wasn't going to survive a fourth surgery um, in that span of time. And luckily, uh, I didn't have to have a fourth surgery. They attached a wound back, and that seemed to do the trick. Um, and I finally got to go home home in April. Um, but that was my first kind of exposure to post-transplant housing and what that looked like um, and how hard that was. I, I have vivid memories of my husband sitting by my my bed in the hospital on his phone, on his laptop, looking at Craigslist and looking at uh, calling hotels and trying to figure out where on earth was the right place for us to stay? Where was the where was the closest place to stay? Where was the place that fit well for us to stay? Um, and it was uh, hard, and it was expensive, and it was um, time that he should have been doing something else. I mean, heck, I would have rather have him go for a walk around the block and do something for self care than have spent the hours and hours that he spent searching for a place for us to stay. Right. I don't even think a lot of doctors or nurses realize how difficult it is for especially transplant patients who are in the hospital for a long time. Um, Because I used to get asked that all the time, like patient family members would ask where they're supposed to see because a lot of them, you know, there's some people who live by the hospital and that's fine, but that's not normally the case. And so it is a really, really big issue. And it's something that I didn't even realize was an issue until I became a patient. But you do need family to stay somewhere near the hospital. And even as a patient yourself, um, post-transplant, you should be close to the hospital for a period of time. Right. And and while I was in the hospital, my husband and son stayed at an Airbnb that I still, I mean, it's it's a family joke now, but it really wasn't a family joke then because we didn't know the area very well. We live about three hours north of Stanford and um, we didn't know the area very well. And the Airbnb that we picked for them to stay in because it was affordable um, was in a super sketchy part of oh, wow. the Bay Area. And it was when they, they'd get out, they'd leave me in the hospital at like 10 o'clock at night. So it's pitch black. And um, the stories that they have told about um, just being in this super sketchy area and worrying about their personal safety um, because we didn't know the area and right. You know, that's, that's another hard part of this puzzle is if you don't know the area and you're not getting the support, um, to, from, from anybody really to tell you, okay, this is a good part of the town. This is not a good part of town. Um, it's, it becomes a little more difficult. And it sounds like this personal experience kind of shaped what you would do and move into in the future. Um, in terms of you starting the Heartfelt Help Foundation. Is that an accurate statement? It is. It was the germination of an idea um, that this part of the system was something that should be changed, could be changed. Um, But it really wasn't until the next year when I was in clinic for regular checkup and I happened to overhear a conversation that um, in reality, it was probably a violation of about 10 HIPAA laws, um, but the door was open in my defense. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, 
I heard about a patient that was inpatient waiting for a transplant and they were um, talking about moving him down the list to a seven because he didn't have the funds to pay for housing, post-transplant housing. And Mm -hmm. I interrupted and said, well, that's just dumb. (laughs) And, uh, and said something as solvable as money should not be Change, uh, shouldn't should not affect whether or not someone gets a transplant or not. Right. So I, I actually went home and threw a fundraiser in my backyard using the hospital's five hundred one c three, and we raised twelve thousand dollars, which is a is a huge sum of money, and ended up helping save that person. But when you add in the fact that I live in Northern California, so I'm north of San Francisco, is where we live, and um. We have wildfires in the fall. That's kind of how we roll. Mm -hmm. And um, this fundraiser that I threw in my backyard was literally when the evacuation order was being lifted on my own house at the time. So, (laughs) so we were, we were just back in the house and pulled off, pulled off a miraculous little fundraiser. Um, And we ended up having enough money for this one gentleman who I found out later was a widower with three little kids and um, wouldn't have, there's no way he would have been able to pay out of pocket for post-transplant housing. That's incredible. That's incredible. And so that was the beginning of Heartfelt Help Foundation. Yeah, that we went home. That was uh, in the fall of 2019. And um, I met with, sat down with my family over the holidays and said, I think this is what I want to do. I think I'm going to file for 501c3. Are you all on board? <laughs> and um, got their agreement and filed the um, paperwork for our 501c3 right after the first of the year in 2020. And then the world shut down. And I thought, well, that's it. That was a fun idea while it lasted. But the government's got bigger fish to fry than process my little 501c3 application. Um but sure enough, we got ours back in the fall of 2020 and we hit the ground running. And uh, we've actually uh, paid in part or in full, depending on insurance coverage, uh, of our now 30 patients post-transplant housing. That's, that's awesome. Incredible. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, we have we have a different model. A lot of places have transplant houses where they have like communal kitchens and communal living rooms, but mm-hmm. everybody has their own bedroom. and. Our model is a little bit different because we know that you're at your most immunosuppressed when you're immediately discharged from the hospital. And so we want to uh, maintain a bubble as we've all, that's our COVID word is maintaining your bubble Mm -hmm. um, while you're in this initial phase of recovery. And so we partner with short-term apartments, leasing companies and suite style hotels to provide patients with the right type of housing that fits their caregiving structure and um, gives them a kitchen, a living room, and a bedroom all to themselves. Oh, that's great. And uh, because every family is different, you know, so a lot of the transplant houses will only allow the patient and a singular caregiver in and you can't swap out. Well, that's not everybody's situation. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we've had patients, uh, pediatric patients who the parents swap off so they can go home and take care of their other children at home. So the parents are swapping off. Um, we've had other pediatric patients where the grandparents or the caregivers and they need a different type of 
living situation. So we treat everybody that comes to us for help like the individuals that they are um, and create a post-transplant living experience that is, to the best of our ability, a place that feels like home with the people who feel like home. That's beautiful. That's great. How can people um, learn more about how they can help your foundation? Well, our website is heartfelthelpfoundation.com. And starting on November 15th and going through the end of the year, Meta, that is the parent company of Facebook, is doubling all recurring donations. So if you go to our foundation's Facebook page, which if you just look up Heartfelt Help Foundation on Facebook, you'll find us. and make a monthly donation through uh, through the end of the year, uh, Meta will double it, which is an amazing uh, Giving Tuesday. Usually they, they will double any donation made on Giving Tuesday, but this year they're expanding it and they're making it uh, a whole month long. That's great. Procedure. And they're they're working to encourage people to donate regularly. So that uh, that's what I would encourage over the rest of this calendar year to do because your impact will, well, double. Great. Um, and we'll be sure to post this information on our social media too, so you can get in touch with Denise and find out more information about the foundation. That would be great. Thank you so much. If anybody actually wants to use your services, how do they get in touch with you? Same website? Same website. We have an inquiry uh, page that is front and center on the website. Um, if you are, we serve Northern California. So if uh, that would be patient, a uh, Kaiser patient, a uh, Stanford patient, a CPMC patient, or a UCSF patient, we're working once UC Davis gets their trans- heart transplant program up and running, we'll be working with them as well. Um, and the other way is straight through your social worker. Um, your so every social worker at every one of the hospitals knows who we are, and uh, can reach out to us. But feel free to reach out to us through social media or through our website. We are so honored to be a part of people's transplant adventures. Um, the adventure is hard enough alone, mm-hmm. um, and. And to part, be able to be privileged to partner with these patients to help them and be the people that I wish that I had when I went through my transplant process. Right. Um, that's the other kind of piece of the puzzle is that, um, and I'm, I'm guessing that you might have had the same experience too, is that I was required to go to our hospital support group meeting after my own transplant and walked into a room of 75-year-old men. Yeah. Um, who were complaining about uh, how bad prednisone was and their wives were complaining about what horrible people they were on prednisone. And I remember walking out into the hallway and bursting into tears and saying, I don't want this. And this isn't my life. Who are these people? Mm-hmm. These people don't look like me. They don't act like me. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually, uh, and there, there was no resources for me at the time. And so to be able to be a resource that, looks like them for the most part and, and, and has a pretty good after story, despite the fact that, you know, the initial six months was kind of rough. Um, you know, that I can hike up a mountain now and I, I love doing it and it's great. And I can be that 
that mentor that I wish I had um, and that I actually sought out and found. I found this woman on Facebook who was a heart transplant patient who was living life the way I wanted to live life. And she looked like me. And I basically, God bless her for being a kind human being, because I basically Facebook stalked her and messaged her and said, and said, um, can you be my friend? Um, can, you, can you, can you help me figure out what all of this is? And luckily she was kind and did it, but I am certain I came across as very stalkery at the time. I think I did the same exact thing to Kobe, actually. <laughs> I'm the old, old man in this game yeah. at this point. Um, yeah. So, um, Oh, one other question. Is it just for a heart transplant or any sort of transplant patient? Right now, we're working with heart transplant patients and dual organ transplant patients um, in Northern California. Okay. Uh, we're hoping in 2023, depending on where our funding's at, that we'll expand to every solid organ transplant patient. That's our goal. That's yeah. um, but we don't want to start saying yes to everybody until we have secure enough funding to be able to say yes to everybody. Of course. And are there any upcoming events in the Northern California area for us to look forward to? Yes, we are having our Heartfelt Block Party, our second annual. Um, I uh, I decided that instead of the traditional gala thing, which I find to be boring and not very much fun, that that uh, life is too short and I don't want to really do anything that doesn't seem like fun. So we have a block party. Um, we have it at a local brewery. We have bands. We have uh, a silent auction. We have food trucks that show up that are amazing. Uh, it's not a ticketed event. Everybody can come and there will be plenty of information as we get closer on our social media channels, both uh, mostly both uh, Instagram and Facebook. We do a little bit on Twitter. I need to get better about Twitter. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about that because I don't know what's going on with Twitter anymore. I know, <laughs> I know. I need to get better. I need to get better at LinkedIn too. I'm getting there slowly but surely. But Instagram is for sure your resource. I will always be there. Awesome. Good to know. So Denise, before you go, is there anything you would want to tell our listeners while you have their ear? If anybody's a pre-transplant or, um, or immediately post-transplant patient out there and wants to reach out, I am happy to, and I'm sure I'm going to speak for Elaine and Colby, but I am, we're, we're happy to be your resource. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead and, and, and be the stalker that I was to somebody else and come ask us what life is like now, because I know, I know that a lot of times the support groups don't look like you and don't act like you and to have a resource available of of people who may be closer in age to you, may be closer in uh, demographic to you, um, available to just help you make sense of this crazy adventure that you're either about to go on or are on. Um, we're happy to be here to help walk you through that. It's it's our privilege. It's my privilege to be able to do that. I see the same thing always. Um, one of the biggest things that I dealt with afterwards was I just like couldn't find people who were going through what I went through who were similar to me. It's, mm -hmm. it's easy to find support groups here and there, but overall, like honestly, I just wanted to like chat with someone and that's all I was really looking forward to. So um, 
for, you know, for me, it was social media that really helped me uh, find my group as well, including you, Denise. I, I got close with you when I first got my transplant too. Yeah. So it is really important to, to other transplant patients and even my own patients, especially when I was in fellowship and I would meet people in the trans who were getting transplants. Um, I would tell them the same thing. I'd say, Hey, I'm here for you. Here's my number. Here's my email. Um, if, if you want to meet people who got, you know, a liver transplant or whatever that person had gotten, like I would give them, um, tips on how to find people through social media. So it, it was great. Absolutely. Social media, as much of a dumpster fire as we, we, we say it is, and it in fact actually is from time to time, right. the transplant world on social media is it's amazing. It's uh-huh. amazing. I agree. I agree. Um, you could not find a, just a better group of, of global humans. Agreed. I third that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, All right. Thank you so much then for coming on. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your story mm-hmm. and talk about your foundation. Thank you so much for having me. I just, uh, we're, we're hoping, we're hoping that uh, we can find the funders that we need to expand because goodness knows I get a call every week now, um, at least once a week from a social worker in the lung transplant department or the liver transplant department of all the hospitals saying, are you ready for us now? Are you ready for us now? And I keep having to say 20, maybe 20, hopefully 2023, cross all your fingers and cross all your toes. Um, but I just, I refuse to, uh, make the same mistake I've watched other nonprofits make, which is that they start saying yes to everybody they want to say yes to, and then they run out of money. And um, I want to be able to say yes to the people who are our core patient population, which are heart transplant patients. And then when we have secure enough funding, then we'll start solid organ by solid organ, adding adding more in. Yeah, that's amazing. I and too super hopeful that you get the funding you need to continue to help people. Hey, it was really, really good talking to both of you and I appreciate you both. Yeah. Thank you. And we appreciate <laughs> you. you for coming on. That's for sure. Well, thank, thank you. you. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Right. Bye. Right. Bye. Right. Thank you again to Denise Redeker for coming on to share her story of heart transplantation and the journey she has taken to start the heartfelt help foundation which is out there helping transplant recipients find housing and thank you to everyone who tuned in and listened to this episode thanks everyone um be sure to follow us on both twitter and on instagram at both sides of the stethoscope if you have any comments or questions or anything that you want to tell us please feel free to email us at both sides of the both sides of the stethoscope at gmail.com it's been like over a year and it's still difficult for me to say this name (laughs) The name has good meaning to it. Very difficult to say. Besots. Besots. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you. See you soon. <laughs>